Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode contains distressing themes, profanity, and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. Six months after the murder of 54-year-old widow Beatrice Alice Rimmer in the hallway of her Liverpool home, two young men from Manchester were facing the possibility of being executed. The prosecution's case was based on the evidence of informants who claimed to have seen Edward Devlin and Alfred Burns in the area at the time the crime was committed, and some alleged to have heard them plan a break-in at the victim's home. After a week of legal proceedings, the accused were given the chance to plead their case and try to prove their innocence. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 41 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 8, Episode 40 for Part 1 of this two-part case. Before her client Edward Devlin testified in his defence, Rose Halbron QC told the court that the leading prosecution witnesses, June Berry, Marie Milne and George McLaughlin, were unreliable and untrustworthy. Discrepancies in their evidence had been pointed out during cross-examination, and Halbron told the jury that the prosecution's case was riddled with inconsistencies. That Mrs. Rimmer was cruelly murdered is beyond question, she said. What you have to decide is whether Devlin and or Burns is guilty or innocent of that offence. Referring to George McLaughlin, 
the 19-year-old prison informant who had admitted to having 40 convictions in his 10-year criminal career, Rose Halbron QC, remarked, Can you place any belief in a man who can alter his story? I suggest he gave a completely different account at this trial to the account he gave at the magistrate's court. After all, the prosecution are asking you to place reliance on his evidence. McLaughlin had told the court that he was sure he met Devlin on Thursday, July 28, 1951, and that they had gone to look at Beatrice Alice Rimmer's home the next morning. But July 28 was a Saturday, and in earlier evidence he had specifically mentioned going to the house after dark and noticing a light was on inside. McLaughlin also said that Devlin had told him he did not want to do the job until the 19th, as he wanted to ensure he was seen in Manchester to establish an alibi. The defence claimed this made no sense, as both Devlin and Burns were hiding from the Manchester police and that was why they had gone to Liverpool in the first place. Rose Halbron QC labelled June Berry's evidence as a mass of contradictions. June had claimed she spent a week with Devlin in Manchester after meeting him, but when confronted with contrasting accounts, she changed her story to say that it had been just one night. June's former partner Stanley Rubin was asked if being jilted would be enough of a reason to want revenge against Devlin. Rubin claimed that he met Devlin in the dive pub on August 18th and informed him that June had a disease. The defence argued that the conversation occurred on August 5th and Rubin had admitted on the stand that the police had suggested the 18th to him when Rubin was questioned. Marie Milne had changed her account numerous times since her first statement to the police in October 1951. During June Berry's testimony, it emerged that Marie had asked June to back her up at trial. June had also been visiting Devlin in prison up to a month before the proceedings got underway. Furthermore, Marie had changed her evidence to, quote, wiggle out of a lie when realising she had said she was threatened with a knife in two different places. Marie had previously said that Devlin told her he would cut her to pieces. Rose Halbron QC also highlighted the alleged incident in a cafe when Devlin produced a red-handled spring blade to cut his dinner. If Devlin had been eating sausages in the Golden Dragon Cafe as Marie had claimed, why had he needed a sharp implement to cut such mushy food? And aside from that... There was no evidence that Beatrice Alice Rimmer, or Alice as she preferred to be called, had been attacked with a knife at all. Marie Milne had claimed that she went to the cinema on August 19th while waiting for Burns and Devlin to break into Alice's home. Yet when asked what movie she had seen, Marie couldn't remember. She could, however, recall minor details like exactly how much Burns had paid a taxi driver. She had told the court that she was terrified of the accused, but Marie admitted willingly going back to meet them twice after they left her alone, when she could have gone to the police or gone home. Marie conceded that she was annoyed that Burns seemed indifferent to her, 
and that others could imply that she had invented the entire scenario. But Marie insisted it was the truth. It was highlighted that all the witnesses knew each other, including Kenneth McNeil, who had admitted that he was romantically involved with June Berry when the trial began. In addition, most of the group had prior convictions for larceny or theft. Stanley Rubin, June's former partner, had been convicted of unlawful wounding, assault and willful damage. Rose Halbron QC told the jury... That is the type of evidence that is put forward by the prosecution for you to convict of murder. McLaughlin, June Berry, Marie Mill. Have you ever found three more unreliable witnesses? They are backed up by Rubin and McNeil. McNeil is a man who went to an identification parade concerned with a murder charge. Knowing full well he was being asked to identify two men, and nevertheless was prepared to pick out two perfectly innocent men. Most of the witnesses admitted that dates had been suggested to them by the investigating officers. The defence alleged that the police had fed information to witnesses and threatened the accused, telling them that they had evidence to prove their guilt, and asked them leading questions while writing down their statements. Edward Devlin's written account seemed to jump from one topic to another, yet the police denied he had been asked any questions to prompt him to disclose specific details, like if they knew June and Marie and the names of cafes they visited. Rose Halbron QC told the court that her client's recollection of his arrest was vastly different from the testimony provided by investigators. Jurors would hear that Devlin's alibi included an admission to committing an entirely different crime on August 19, 1951, 30 miles away in Manchester. Edward Devlin was escorted to the witness box in a blue suit with a matching shirt and tie. At the beginning of his testimony... He admitted that he would not be described as someone of good character, having been convicted of larceny and housebreaking on four occasions between 1942 and 1950, three of which occurred when he was a teenager. However, the court also heard that the defendant had never been in trouble for violence. Devlin testified that it was true that he met June Berry during Whitsuntide in May 1951, but said that after spending the night with her he didn't want to see June again, and failed to turn up for a date the following day. In early August, while Devlin was on bail and Burns had absconded from a borstal, they decided to lay low in Liverpool and were aware that June lived there. According to Devlin, they knew, quote, what sort of girl she was, and asked around to try and find her address. They were subsequently told she lived on Canning Street, so while Burns waited in a pub, Devlin took a taxi to her house and asked her to come out with them. She happily agreed. It was August 2nd, the first time Devlin had been in Liverpool in some time. He adamantly denied that he had ever met George McLaughlin on July 27th or 28th. 
The following day, he travelled to Manchester with his friends to get a change of clothes and then returned to Liverpool. During his testimony, Devlin said that in the early hours of August 4th, in the company of June Berry and Alfred Burns, he went to the Rainbow Café, where they were introduced to Marie Milne. While sitting upstairs in the all-night café, the young woman approached Marie and told her that someone was downstairs waiting for her. Marie later told them that it was a man she had been seeing and she didn't want to speak with him. A few hours later, they all accompanied June back to Canning Street so she could get her suitcase. And while June and Marie were inside, Devlin and Burns waited on the corner. Devlin said that a man he later learned was Stanley Rubin followed June outside and told her to choose between them. She chose Devlin. That night, Burns and Marie managed to find a room together at a boarding house on Verulam Close. Devlin didn't know the name of the street where he stayed, but remembered that the landlord was a young black man. June told him they could get a room together at the Mount Pleasant Hotel for the night. The following afternoon, while having a drink alone with Burns, Devlin claimed Burns admitted that he didn't like Marie and asked if they wanted to switch. Devlin said it was in the dive that afternoon on August 5th that Stanley Rubin approached him and told him that June had a disease. He believed Rubin was just making it up so Devlin would leave her. Later that evening, Devlin Burns, June and Marie were standing near the station when someone came up to Marie and told her that June was a professional brass and that her parents would kill her if she didn't come home. Devlin said that Marie didn't want to return to her parents and they all decided to go to Manchester. June and Marie had testified that while on the train, Devlin and Burns openly spoke about their plans to break into Beatrice Alice Rimmer's home. However, Devlin denied that the conversation had occurred. After getting to Manchester and wanting to avoid being seen by the police who may have been looking for them, Devlin and Burns took Marie and June to their friend Norman Higgins' flat. June and Burns left to get some food and drink. Devlin said that Marie confided that she knew Alfie, or Alfred Burns, didn't like her. Devlin told her that his friend would get used to her, and they ended up having sex before June and Burns came back. When Norman Higgins and his wife returned to the flat that night, they told Devlin and Burns that they did not want the young women to stay there. So the two young men walked June and Marie to the station and told them to stay in the room on Verulam Close, where Burns had prepaid for a week. Devlin and Burns explained they would be back in a few days after the bank holiday. According to Devlin, when he and Burns called at Verulam Close on August 8th or 9th, Marie had left, and June told them that she had been out all night on a job and had been picked up by the police. Devlin described how angry he was that June had been out with other men after just a few days, and June started crying and asked them to take her back to Manchester because she didn't want to go to court that morning. June was originally from Manchester, 
and her mother still lived there, so Devlin and Burns agreed to go with her. Devlin told the court that he felt guilty for wanting to finish with June, especially as he believed he was responsible for ending her relationship with Stanley Rubin. As a result, Devlin and Burns planned a break-in at Liverpool Road Station in Manchester to get her some money. They had given June their max to hold on to while they broke in and stole a bale of linen sheets, but when they returned to retrieve the max, June had left. Two days later, Devlin and Burns spoke to June, who told them her mother had sent their max to be dry-cleaned. During June's testimony, however... She admitted that along with her mother, she had pawned the Max and lied to Devlin and Burns. Devlin then began detailing the days leading up to August 19th, the night he was alleged to have killed Beatrice Alice Rimmer in Liverpool. Edward Devlin claimed that he did not leave Manchester at all that week, and after staying in his sister's flat on August 16th, he met with Alfred Burns on Friday the 17th. They called at the home of Burns's brother Henry, as it was Henry's five-year-old son's birthday. This was corroborated by several witnesses, including Henry Burns, his wife Mary, and Mary's friend Alice. They recalled Devlin and Burns's arrival that day and taking the little boy out to buy him a toy bow and arrow for his birthday. Later that night, they went out to a milk bar on Stretford Road, where they met a man named Alan Campbell. 21-year-old Campbell had known Devlin for years, and he had come to know Burns in the previous few months from nights out. Devlin and Burns told Campbell about a job they had planned, breaking into the Sun Blinds warehouse on Great Jackson Street. They arranged to meet up again two days later when they knew the warehouse would be empty. On Sunday, August 19th, Burns and Devlin went to watch a match between two public house teams at Barrack Park. There they were seen by Alice Ford, who asked them if they had seen her son who had received a court summons. Alice had come forward after hearing that the pair were charged with murder. Later that night, Devlin and Burns were seen with Alan Campbell at the Ship Inn in Deansgate by Anne Ford, who was married to Alice Ford's brother-in-law, John. She testified that it was John's birthday that weekend when they had gone out to celebrate, making her certain about the date. Devlin said that along with Burns and Campbell, they left the Ship Inn before 11pm and waited until the streets were quiet then headed to the warehouse on Great Jackson Street. 18-year-old Matilda Miller testified that she remembered seeing the three men in Deansgate as she made her way home after celebrating her 18th birthday. According to Devlin, the trio went into the back of the warehouse and broke a pane of glass by covering the window with a coat and punching it. He said they managed to steal over 100 raincoats, a dozen rolls of red waterproof material, seven or eight rolls of gabardine, and a dozen bundles of grey trousers. There were 15 pairs in each bunch. 
the group hid their takings behind the factory while they went to look for a lorry. But after they couldn't find one to steal, they asked a woman named Joan Downing if they could borrow her pram and hide the stolen goods in her home. Joan agreed, and they managed to transport some of the items before Devlin was spotted by a watchman. He said that they threw the rest of the stolen materials over a fence on waste ground and then fled. Devlin's account was corroborated not only by Burns, but by Alan Campbell, who had been convicted of the break-in. Campbell had pleaded guilty to breaking into the Sunblinds warehouse around August 18, 1951, but he told the court that he was certain it had occurred on the 19th, as it was his first and only offence. Campbell recalled that Devlin had broken a window and climbed inside the property to pass the items outside, but when Burns had entered the warehouse, he cut his leg on the glass. When he was arrested for the offence, Alan Campbell had told the police Burns and Devlin were with him, but he said that the judge had told the detectives not to mention that when he was seen at Manchester Assizes. Campbell also confirmed that Joan Downing had been with them and used her child's pram to wheel the goods back to her house. The director of Sunblinds, Ronald Kessler, told the court that the warehouse had been broken into on August 17th and again on the 18th or 19th. He couldn't be sure as it had closed for the weekend. When they reopened on Monday the 20th, They found a lot of stolen items on waste ground on the other side of a fence. Kessler thought it was unlikely that the goods had been out in the rain for two nights, strengthening the defence's contention that the break-in occurred on the 19th. A large rubber cosh was found at the scene of the break-in, and both Devlin and Burns confirmed that they had brought it with them after taking it from a man they knew. The prosecution argued that the weapon was proof that the defendants would be willing to use violence during a robbery and insisted that the break-in occurred on August 18th, giving Devlin and Burns time to travel to Liverpool and kill Beatrice Alice Rimmer the next day. It was Alfred Burns' turn to enter the witness box. He strode up wearing a pale blue suit with a striped silk tie. It was February 22nd, 1952, and he was to be questioned by his counsel, Sir Noel Goldie, QC. Burns admitted that he had prior convictions for break-ins, but said that he had never committed a violent crime. He had come home on leave from a borstal in July 1951, and was adamant that he did not intend to go back. Burns told the court that he couldn't stay with his mother in case the police looked for him there, so he stayed with friends, including a woman named Joan Fitzgerald. The majority of Burns's testimony aligned with Edward Devlin's, the dates they travelled to Liverpool and what they did while they were there. Burns agreed that he had stayed with Marie on Verulam Close for one night, but by the next night he didn't want to know her. Regarding the break-in at Sunblinds in Manchester, Burns explained that he had tried to climb in through the broken window, 
and realised he had cut himself when he felt blood trickling down his leg. He recalled that they had all spent the night at Joan Downing's home, although she was not called to testify. Years later, Joan told author George Skelly that she had been threatened with being charged as an accomplice if she gave evidence at the trial. Nevertheless, Burns Devlin and friend Alan Campbell were seen at Burns's mother's later that day on August 20th by Burns's brother Henry. The defence highlighted inconsistencies with the evidence surrounding Burns and Devlin's arrests. Devlin had been taken into custody on October 10th, 1951 and claimed that he was told it was for an entirely different offence than he was being tried for. The defendant stated, Detective Lynch said I was seen around this theatre at two o'clock in the morning, but I had done the job earlier in the evening. Two men were convicted for it and are now doing time, but they were innocent of it because I had done it. Devlin believed he was being arrested for breaking into a theatre, something that he admitted. But when Devlin got to Bootle Street Station, he was told to his surprise that he was being arrested for murder. He explained to the court he thought the officers were joking, but recalled Sergeant Richardson telling him, You know, June, Marie and Alfie have swung it all on you. You should make a statement or you'll end up getting top. Referring to his initial statements, Devlin testified that he was being asked questions by Superintendent Herbert Barmer as another officer wrote down his answers. Devlin's co-defendant Alfred Burns had told the court that he was in prison at the time of his arrest and had heard from others that Devlin had been charged with murder. Like his co-defendant, Burns claimed that his statement was influenced by Superintendent Barmer's questions. The defendants testified about the suits they were alleged to have worn during the murder. After their arrests, investigators had sent Devlin's gabardine suit and Burns's pinstripe suit to be analysed at the forensic science lab. Although Dr. Firth said both suits tested positive for the presence of blood, there was not enough blood to obtain a blood type. Devlin claimed that he had last worn his suit on August 6th. It had become bloody after a fight in a pub caused staining on his jacket. His mother had tried to remove the marks, but they were too ingrained so she sent it to a pawn shop to be cleaned. Samuel Crean, who lived near Devlin in Manchester, told the court that he recalled Devlin knocking at his door one night with blood streaming from his nose. Crean was unhappy that Devlin had called at his home, but he specifically remembered that the blood had covered Devlin's fawn-coloured suit jacket and his shirt. Amy Devlin, the accused's mother, said that she had sent the suit to a pawnbroker the next day. This was confirmed by the manager, who recalled that it looked like someone had been murdered. Devlin's brother Peter was home on leave at the beginning of August. Although Amy Devlin had collected Edward Devlin's suit a few days after having it cleaned, 
she had to pawn it as she had given Peter all her money while he was home. She collected it again on the 23rd when her other son got out of hospital and needed something to wear. The defence argued that this explained why any bloodstains were found on the suit, and the same could be said for the blood found on Burns's trousers. As corroborated by friend Alan Campbell and Edward Devlin, Alfred Burns had cut his leg while breaking into the Sunblinds warehouse, and that was why blood had been found on the inner lining of his trousers below the knee. Burns had told the police that he left the suit jacket in a taxi at some point in September, but his friend Joan Fitzgerald, whose house he had been staying in on Cornbrook Street at the time of his arrest, said that he had forgotten it when he left. According to author George Skelly, who has spent over a decade researching the case, Joan Fitzgerald had been arrested for child neglect a week before the trial began, and interestingly was brought from prison to testify about the jacket. Edward Devlin also gave evidence that June Berry had visited him in prison on a number of occasions, and in January, one month before the trial, she came to Walton Jail. He said, She mumbled something that she had given a false name to get in. She was sorry she had put us in prison for four months, Marie had told her to back her up, and she would tell the truth in court. Devlin claimed that June had admitted to him that what she told the police was untrue. During her closing address, Rose Halbron QC acting for Edward Devlin asked the jury to realise the glaring inconsistencies of the prosecution's case and told them it would be unsafe for them to convict Alfred Burns and Edward Devlin on the evidence that had been presented. Attacking George McLaughlin's credibility and his account that Devlin had planned the break-in at Beatrice Alice Rimmer's home down to the most minor detail, the barrister remarked, McLaughlin's aunt lived at Cranbourne Road, and McLaughlin is a Liverpool man. Yet you are asked to believe that Devlin and Burns came from Manchester to tell McLaughlin of a job on Cranbourne Road. Rose Halbron QC highlighted that Burns and Devlin did not know the area well, and it was unlikely that they were privy to information like how often Thomas Rimmer visited his mother. Halbron continued, Why should Devlin pick out a house in Cranbourne Road? out of the whole of Liverpool, which by a strange coincidence happens to be the road in which McLaughlin's aunt lives. I suggest to you he was a liar and told many lies in the box. The jury heard that McLaughlin, who had first been interviewed in September 1951, had ample time and opportunity to realise who it was he had to identify by the time he attended a lineup on October 17th. Criticising the other key witnesses, including June Berry and Marie Mill, Rose Halbron QC went on to say, There is an old adage which says all liars should have good memories, and if you have a liar with a bad memory, you may think you get the sort of evidence you have had presented to you in this case by some witnesses. 
St George's Hall was packed with spectators as Halbron delivered her closing speech. She asked the jury to consider how reliable Marie Milne's testimony was. Marie had claimed that Burns and Devlin went to Beatrice Alice Rimmer's home at 9pm, but it was proven that the victim could not have arrived at the property until an hour later. Halbron asked what the accused could have been doing in the house during that time, which meant they left no trace. The barrister stated, It is notorious that women of the class of Marie Milne and June Berry are unscrupulous. They cannot be judged by normal standards, and yet you are being asked to convict these men on the evidence of these women. Is it not too dangerous, too uncertain, and too unsafe to convict on the evidence presented to you here? Evidence full of doubt, conflict, and confusion. The defence counsel argued that the stolen goods found on waste ground outside of the Sunblinds warehouse on Monday, August 20th was silent corroboration that the theft had taken place the previous night, which backed up the accused's alibi. In his final address, Basil Neild, QC acting for the Crown, argued that the alibi for the defence was invented to cover the time of the offence, but the prosecution believed the sunblinds theft in Manchester had occurred on the 18th, meaning that Burns and Devlin would have had time to travel to Liverpool and commit the murder. The prosecutor also told the jury that both men had been charged with murder, and if they found one guilty, they should find the other guilty too. 
ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing. That's where Scent Air comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. On the 10th day of the trial, February 27th, 1952, Mr. Justice Finnamore was due to begin summing up the case. Queues outside St. George's Hall had been forming since 7am, three hours before the doors would open. Over 500 people, mostly women, were eagerly waiting to get inside. A scuffle broke out when one man attempted to jump the line, and after he was grabbed by a mob of women, other men eventually led him to the back of the queue. Mr Justice Finnamore explained that the argument that Burns and Devlin were in Beatrice Alice Rimmer's house was supported by the testimony of Marie Milne, June Berry, Kenneth McNeil, Stanley Rubin and George McLaughlin, and corroborated by the supposed blood spatter on the defendant's clothes. Referring to the prosecution's key witness, the judge said, You have heard Miss Milne attacked by the counsel for the defence. You may take the view that if there is one person in the world other than those who did this crime, Marie Milne is the person who knows. Judge Finnamore's address lasted several hours. At lunchtime, he asked jurors if they wanted to continue the hearing the following day to finish up that evening. Without any hesitation, the jury elected to finish the case that day. When the jury of 12 men retired to deliberate at 4.15pm, a crowd of almost 1,000 people had gathered outside St George's Hall to await an announcement. Jurors returned 75 minutes later. As the foreman announced that they had found Edward Devlin guilty of murder, there were gasps and cries from the gallery. Court officers had to call for silence so the verdict for Alfred Burns could be heard, and when it was announced that he too had been found guilty, his relatives sank in their seats. Mr Justice Finnamore asked the defendants if they wanted to say anything before he passed the sentence. Devlin leaned forward in the dock, 
his knuckles turning white from gripping the railings, and he said, My lord, I would like to stress that it means the police are not infallible to tell lies. When I was arrested, they took me on the pretense of the theatre being broken into. The men convicted of breaking into that theatre were innocent. I'd done the job at twelve o'clock. Everything I have said in this court is true. The hum of the crowd grew louder, and Burns had to strain his voice to be heard when he told the judge, I want to say something too. As far as the evidence is concerned, I think it has been quite a fair trial, but as far as the judge is concerned, I think he has given a prejudiced view of the case. Casting his eyes towards the jury, Burns continued, I cannot understand how you brought a verdict of guilty. It is a most unfair verdict. We have told the truth and nothing but the truth, but you have been prejudiced against us. I hope at the appeal court everything will come out in the true light. Alfred Burns and Edward Devlin were sentenced to be executed for the murder of Beatrice Alice Rimmer and sent to Walton Jail to await their deaths. Appeals were lodged by Burns and Devlin's counsel within days of the sentence being passed. The pair were provisionally scheduled to be executed three weeks later, but the date was moved while the appeal was pending. At a hearing on March 31st, 1952, before Lord Goddard, Lord Ormerod and Justice Parker in the London Court of Criminal Appeal, Rose Halbron QC asked if she could submit new evidence that she believed proved June Berry had lied during the trial. A few days earlier on March 27th, a 15-year-old named Elizabeth Rook came forward and informed the defence that before the trial, at a hostel, June Berry had confessed to her and two older women, Joan Porter and Dorothy Doyle, that Burns and Devlin were not responsible for Beatrice Alice Rimmer's murder and that the actual killer was a soldier named Oste. Lord Goddard was of the opinion that the case depended on much more than June Berry's testimony and refused to allow the new evidence to be submitted. The defence based their appeal on the grounds that the judge had misdirected the jury by asking them if Burns and Devlin could have still committed the warehouse break-in in Manchester after killing Beatrice Alice Rimmer in Liverpool. That theory was never introduced by the prosecution, and as a result, the defence argued that they did not have a chance to challenge it. Rose Halbron QC also highlighted that the judge had not mentioned several defence points, including how surprising it was that nothing was disturbed in the victim's home when two career criminals known for thieving had allegedly broken in to steal something. She said... In my submission, the judge dealt with the prosecution's case in a different manner from that of the defence. He was very careful to point out where the defence witnesses had tripped up. He was not so careful in pointing out the contradictions in the prosecution's evidence. 
Burns's counsel, Sir Noel Goldie, QC, and junior counsel, Mr. Nance, got off to a difficult start when Mr. Nance's car was broken into and someone stole his wig, gown, and documents relating to the case. After being able to borrow a wig and gown from another barrister, Sir Noel told the court that the prosecution had placed great importance on the cosh found at the Manchester warehouse robbery which proved that the accused had been at the warehouse, but the judge had simply said that it proved that they were prepared to use violence. Referring to the cameo cinema murders which had ended in an execution two years earlier, Sir Noel said that there had been prejudice against the accused and the jury should have had more precise directions on reasonable doubt. Sir Noel asked the lords to reverse the verdict citing that there was more reasonable doubt in the case than most others. After brief consideration, Lord Goddard said, On proper direction and review of the evidence, the jury were justified in coming to the verdict they did. The evidence against these men is overwhelming, and that is the reason why the jury rejected the alibi defence. The appeal is therefore dismissed. The matter was referred to the then Home Secretary David Maxwell Fife, who ordered an inquiry into the statements allegedly made by June Berry and a man named Joseph Ernest Howarth. The inquiry was opened by Albert Gerard QC behind the closed doors of the Municipal Annex in Liverpool on October 4th, 1952. Assisted by Chief Superintendent Harold Hawkyard from Scotland Yard, Gerard reviewed the case and heard testimony from witnesses, including June Berry, George McLaughlin and Stanley Rubin, who was brought from prison having been charged with assault a day after the trial had ended. Edward Devlin's sister Eileen Ackroyd informed the inquiry that June Berry had come to her in January 1952 and told her that Kenneth McNeil had asked her to clean bloody clothing the day after Beatrice Alice Rimmer was murdered. McNeil, who was said to often wear a navy or military blouse and had fair hair, was suggested to be the man police were looking for during the early stages of the investigation when they appealed for a man nicknamed Ginge. According to Eileen Ackroyd, June claimed that Superintendent Barmer had threatened her into lying about Burns and Devlin's involvement and paid for her to have her hair permed. June Berry denied saying anything to the women in the hostel or Devlin's sister when she testified at the inquiry. Albert Gerard QC reported that he believed June had lied to the women in the hostel, but concluded she had told the truth at the trial. The lawyer believed that June had lied to the women about another man's involvement because up until the trial, she had still been quite fond of Edward Devlin. Since then, on the admission of June herself and initial suspect Kenneth McNeil, June became romantically involved with McNeil. Albert Gerard QC also accepted the evidence of George McLaughlin, 
despite learning that he had seen photographs of the accused before identifying them in a lineup. Furthermore, evidence was produced regarding a so-called confession made by a man named Joseph Ernest Howard. Howarth told a Manchester City police constable that he had overheard Burns and Devlin discussing Beatrice Alice Rimmer's home. Howarth claimed to have broken into the house, and when he saw her walk through the door, he hit her and ran. However, Howarth recanted the confession within a day and claimed that he wasn't sure why he said he committed the murder, but thought Burns and Devlin were innocent. A theory Devlin had suggested was tested during the inquiry. He had written to the Home Secretary earlier that month stating that he believed George McLaughlin and Kenneth McNeil had planned the break-in with Marie Mill, and when McLaughlin was arrested, Stanley Rubin had taken his place, and they were all conspiring to frame him and Burns. In his final report on April 22, 1952, Albert Gerard QC noted his belief that McLaughlin, Rubin and McNeil were truthful, and he concluded that there had not been a miscarriage of justice. The defence attempted to get a last-minute reprieve, but their requests were rejected. On April 24th, reporters were told there was nothing more that could be done. The executions were set for the following morning. Recalling her final visit with her son, Amy Devlin said that he had told her, Don't worry, ma'am. If we die, we shall die as martyrs, not murderers. I am trusting in God. Notices were posted on the gates of Walton Jail on the eve of the execution, informing the public that Burns and Devlin were to be hanged simultaneously at 9am. Hundreds of people lined the walkways along the walls of Hornby Road as they waited for the notice to be changed. Burns and Devlin's relatives knelt on the path and prayed. Burns's mother could be heard pleading, God have mercy on these innocent boys. Considering the public feeling that the men were possibly innocent, special measures were taken to ensure that there were no acts of protest outside of the prison. Some arrests were made when people got too close to the gate. Inside Walton Jail, Alfred Burns and Edward Devlin had their final meeting with the chaplains, before being led from their condemned cells to the gallows. The lead executioner was Albert Pierpoint, who was assisted by Sid Durnley and two younger recruits, Robert Stewart and Harry Smith. They prepared to carry out the first double hanging at Walton Jail. The execution is described in Sid Durnley's memoir. He explains how Devlin no longer looks handsome or rugged as he had done in photographs published in the press. Durnley wrote, His face and brow were creased with lines. He was as white as a sheet, and he was terrified. 
Robert Stewart and Harry Smith brought Burns through the doors to the thick oak-beamed gallows as Devlin's legs were being strapped by Durnley. Quote, Burns had a warder either side of him just in case, but he couldn't care less tough guy no longer existed. He was as white as Devlin and looked just a frightened lad. Durnley said that Burns stared wide-eyed at his best friend, who was already wearing a white hood with a noose around his neck. Neither man had a chance to speak before the trap doors opened and they fell into the straw-lined pit below, dying instantly. A notice was posted on the gates a few minutes later at 9.10am, announcing the sentence had been passed. Alfred Burns' mother let out a guttural scream and was taken away to a nearby car while the crowd pushed forward to try and read what the notice said. Devlin's sisters were present and told reporters, We still believe in the innocence of the boys. So where are we now? In the wake of the execution, Albert Gerard QC, who had led the inquiry, spoke to the House of Lords about granting the Court of Criminal Appeal the power to order a new trial. There were several elements he had to investigate during his inquiry, and Gerard felt that a new trial would have been better than assuming the role of both judge and jury. The Court of Appeal has had the power to order a new trial since 1968. In June 2003, the Court of Criminal Appeal made a decision that brought the safety of Alfred Burns and Edward Devlin's convictions into question once more. Two years before Beatrice Alice Rimmer was murdered, Leonard Thomas and Bernard Catterall were fatally shot at the Cameo Cinema 100 yards from her home on Cranbourne Road. The investigation, headed by the same Liverpool City CID investigators in charge of Alice's murder inquiry, eventually led to two men named George Kelly and Charles Connolly. Their trials were severed, and after Kelly, who was represented by Rose Halbron QC, was found guilty and sentenced to death. Connolly pleaded guilty to conspiracy and accessory to murder. Connolly was sentenced to 10 years in prison. George Kelly was executed on March 28, 1950 at Walton Jail. In 2003, the Court of Criminal Appeal quashed the convictions after hearing that Superintendent Herbert Barmer had falsified evidence and statements had not been introduced at the trial. According to author George Skelly, who has written books on both the Cameo Cinema case and Beatrice Alice Rimmer's murder, Superintendent Barmer used the same tactics to frame Alfred Burns and Edward Devlin. In Skelly's book Murder or Martyrs, he states that evidence was suppressed that would have exonerated Burns and Devlin and implicated others, including Alice's son Thomas, 
who she had said let money slip through his hands like water. A letter Alice wrote to her pension supplier read in part, I do know if I passed out, he would have a royal time of it for a few months. No glass had been found on Thomas Rimmer's coat, even though he said he had climbed through a broken window to access the property and the first officers at the scene claimed that the back door was unlocked. George Skelly revealed that he submitted 11 bundles of new evidence to the Criminal Cases Review Commission in 2011, but they declined to refer the case to the Court of Criminal Appeal. An investigation carried out by the BBC in 2018 suggested that there was improper conduct by senior investigating officers. George Skelly, along with Alfred Burns and Edward Devlin's extended family members, are still trying to have the case reviewed. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.